preaching of God's Word is found in Acts chapter 11 and verse 18. We take this text as our focus in our series on conversion. And for the sake of some context, notice that here Peter is speaking of the work of God among the Gentiles. And so if you look back, Peter, verse 2, has come up to Jerusalem and he's accused, verse 3, of going into men uncircumcised and eating with them. Verse 4, Peter rehearses the matter and he explains the vision he was shown. And then notice it was that he concludes that in verse 12, The Spirit bade me go with them, nothing doubting. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered into the man's house. And he showed us how he had seen an angel in his house, which stood and said unto him, Send men to Joppa, and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who shall tell thee words whereby thou and all thy house shall be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Ghost fell on them as on us at the beginning. And I remembered, uh, then remembered I the word of the Lord, how that he said, John indeed baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost. For as much then as God gave them the light gift as he did unto us, who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, what was I that I could withstand God? When they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. It's this expression which is so pregnant with meaning. Repentance unto life. And you'll notice in context that these Jews who for generations back to Abraham had been instructed in this dividing line between Jew and Gentile, the covenant of circumcision, which was then further clarified through the dietary restrictions and other ceremonial legislations that were put upon the people of Israel. God was distinguishing His people from the world. We realize that there is, and to our shame in our own generation, there is tremendous evil, and sinful discrimination. Yet we have no hesitation in affirming that God graciously discriminates, not along the lines that men do, but He discriminates between His beloved chosen people and those who are consigned to death and damnation. Largely, under the Old Covenant, This ran along the line of Jew and Gentile. Not that every Jew was converted, because as we have reference in the Old Testament, the outward circumcision was, as baptism today is to be, it was a sign of what was needed spiritually. And so you'll remember the exhortation, circumcise ye the foreskin of your hearts just as baptism is a sign testifying 
of the need of spiritual cleansing. But you can understand why the Jews, even believing Jews at Peter's day, stumbled at this. Peter, you've gone to be with the unclean, not just as we think ceremonially, but spiritually unclean Gentiles. You've had fellowship with them. And notice Peter rehearses, among other things, the work and gift of the Spirit. This is of vital importance to their understanding because they now see that in the Spirit being given to them, that they would have faith in Jesus Christ and indeed be strengthened to walk in holiness, they have been given repentance unto life. They've turned from their sins unto God. Now this is important because it's not something peculiar to this historical moment that this term has meaning. Notice, then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. What's being said is this, just as unto the Jews who believe, repentance unto life has been granted, so now we see that He is giving this repentance unto life unto the Gentiles. So in other words, this category of thought, repentance unto life, is a category that is a display of salvation. And they are acknowledging that it has been given to the Gentiles. And so our catechism, the shorter catechism, raises the question, what is repentance unto life? Where are they getting that language? From this text. And this text is helping us see that there is a true repentance, a saving repentance, as well as, even as this expression implies, there is also a false repentance. And how needed it is that we are sure we have true repentance. Well, we take this up in our series on conversion because we've already seen that conversion itself has to do with turning unto God. Now, that is a broad word that's used with conversion, this turning of ourselves. But the word repentance is likewise a turning. But the word repentance, so frequently found in the Greek, is a word that literally means a changing or turning of the mind. Now, this is not something that is, as you and I change our mind about where we're going to eat, or we change our mind about what we're going to wear, or what time we're going to get up, or any of those things. Those are you know, little and simple. But rather, it's talking about the whole estate, the orientation of our mind. Because you think of this, sin is spoken of as that which has darkened our minds. And with our minds now, we serve sin. And with our hearts, we're given to sin. We're enslaved to sin. And so this repentance that's spoken of, which is unto life, is a comprehensive turning of the very fountain of our thoughts. That whereas once we were opposed to God, now it is with repentance we are turned unto God. So it's far deeper than the simple turning of our minds that we use with reference to the simple things of our day-to-day living. And notice, it's granted by God. It's not something that men of themselves can work up. 
It is something that requires the sovereign grace of God to give. And notice it is unto life. It is a living repentance that is unto true spiritual life. And so we wish to consider, having considered last week's saving faith, we wish to look and see its common twin as it is found with that same grace of faith, even repentance unto life. You'll remember how frequently these two words are put together as we in brief surveyed a bit previous time. Faith and repentance regularly put together. Believe and repent. Repent and believe the Gospel. Sometimes the one is put in the forefront. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. At other times it's repentance. Repent and turn unto the Lord. But where one is found, the other is not far behind. It's a common way of speaking. There are two sides of the same coin. But we have to be clear, faith is not repentance, and repentance is not in and of itself faith. They are two sides of the coin of saving grace. Saving grace, when it comes, will give saving faith whereby we receive Christ and rest upon Him alone as He's offered unto us in the Gospel, and we will turn from our wickedness and the ways of the world. So, these are found together as they are administered by God's grace unto salvation. So, we wish to look at three things as we consider this aspect repentance unto life. Firstly, the meaning of repentance unto life. Secondly, the motives. And thirdly, the cause. The meaning, the motives, and the cause of repentance unto life. Now we've already noted in general the meaning of repentance. The word itself means a changing of our mind. And it's not just the flip-flopping back and forth on things, but rather the stable change of our minds. That once we were in one direction, and now there is an overhaul so that our thoughts run in a new vein. Now, of course, when we think about repentance, it's right for us to think about those inward affections of sorrow, regret, and shame. Because what happens when one is converted and repentance takes place is there has been the display of our waywardness and backwardness and perversion in the ways of sin. We read of this in Jeremiah 31. Surely have I heard Ephraim doing what? Bemoaning himself. I have been chastised. And why was he chastised? Because of the sins of his youth. It's interesting. If converted in a later age, we can think back to the sins of our youth. And we can think with shame how as a child or as a young person or as a young adult, we abandon ourselves with pleasure unto things which were wicked and sinful. And in Jeremiah 31, What is the cry? But turn me, and I shall be turned. So you'll notice these are brought together where there is a bitterness of taste 
of our sins. That's something that's part of repentance. There's a real shame over what has been done. That's a part of repentance. But as is important to see, that feeling, that shame, is not repentance itself. Though it is included in repentance, repentance, simply put, is the turning to God from sin. Why is this important? Because there is a counterfeit repentance, which sometimes is called a carnal or worldly repentance. Sometimes it's just referred to as repentance. But the reason it's called that is because whereas the sinner has gone on boldly in the course of sin with the thought of prospering or succeeding or coming out on top, they get the bitter taste that they were wrong. And in that sense, there's been a change of mind. We mentioned earlier of Jonadab with reference to his counsel to Amnon, how to deceive his sister into this illicit relationship. And it's striking. It is said of Amnon that after he commits this wicked sin, that his hatred now for Tamar was greater than the love with which he earlier loved her. What happened there? Well, he was bent headstrong unto a course of sin. And his only thought was, if I would just have the sweet delicacies of this lust satisfied, I would have all that I could desire. And as soon as he has it, what happens? He detests the very thing. And he casts his sister, half-sister, from him, which shows something. There's sorrow. There's shame. There is regret. But there's not repentance. You see, there's a contrast that Paul observes in 2 Corinthians and chapter 7. 2 Corinthians and chapter 7. He speaks of a sorrowing unto repentance. Verse 9, I rejoice not that ye were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to repentance. For ye were made sorry after a godly manner, that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation not to be repented of. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. In other words, an unconverted, unregenerate man, woman, child can come to the point of feeling the sorrow and shame of sin. And though there may even be outward corrections, they're not actually repenting to salvation. They're not looking to the Lord. We have tremendous examples of this. We have Amnon, which we mentioned earlier. You think of Saul of Tarsus himself, who comes to discover his sin, and yet, though he's ashamed by it, he says, yet honor me this once before the sight of men. He's not turned unto God. You think of Judas Iscariot, and notice the language in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27. 
You think of Judas's sin as we considered this morning from Luke 22. But notice now the end of that, the fruit of it in his own life. Matthew chapter 27 at verse 3. Then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself and brought again the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I've sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? See thou to that. He cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. What does Judas have? Well, we're not wrong to say, even as the Scriptures do, that there's a form of repentance there. He sees that what he's done is wrong. He's shamed by it. He's convicted by it. Notice even his language. He says, I have sinned. He takes the price of blood and he takes it back. And yet, there's no repentance unto life. The sorrow is a carnal, self-centered, shame-filled sorrow that brings about regret that the only outlet of which is either somehow overcoming the volume that is cranked up, screaming at him of his sin and shame, or the ultimate act of taking his own life. Judas, of course, is the one who becomes his own murderer. There's no saving repentance here. This is something that can be helpful for us when we confront someone in sin, sometimes even heinous sin. And we say, listen, you need to repent. And they say, well, I have repented. And we say, well, what do you mean? Well, you say, I'm sorry about it. I've cried about it. I'm really moved by the fact that this has impacted other people. I wish it hadn't have happened. If I could go back, I wouldn't have done it that way. I've sinned even. But get on with it, you know. I'm done with it. I'm moving on. And yet you look at their life and they are still engaged in explicit sin. There's a form of repentance. The sorrow, the regret, the shame. But true repentance cuts off and casts away the course of sin. So when someone is caught in a scandal, they're reproved, they've got tears streaming down their face, they say, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I messed up, I sinned, I, it's shameful what I've done, and so on, would you forgive me? And yet they will not break from sin. There's not repentance. Because repentance breaks off the sin. It takes the axe, as John the Baptist says, and it lays it to the root. Whereas worldly sorrow, false repentance, takes the axe and it merely trims up that obvious evidence of sin. But it will not suffer the axe to be laid to the root. You think of Esau who sold his birthright for a morsel of food. And what is it said? But that Esau was one who, when it was that he was discovered in this way of his sin, that he sought a place for repentance and found it 
not. He was sorrowful. He sought it as it is unto great diligence, but he could not find a place for repentance. Brethren, these are significant truths. These are things that can be the difference between eternal life and eternal death. If you mistake this false form of repentance for true repentance, and you lean upon that false form, you are holding unto that which will in no way relieve your soul in eternity. This is why it's important to understand what they're saying here. Repentance unto life. What is repentance unto life? What is its meaning? Well, it includes oftentimes sorrow. It includes shame. Again, you can go to 2 Corinthians 7 and you see Paul making this very point when he says, I don't rejoice that I made you sorry, but rather that you sorrowed after a godly sort. Godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, deliverance. And notice in verse 11, the mark of true repentance. Ye sorrowed after a godly sort. And what was its effect? Not anything of comfort in your sin. Not anything of justifying your course. Not anything of saying, well, ease up. All Christians sin. Ease up. You know, sin is common. And who is it that's without sin? No, here's the mark of repentance. What carefulness it wrought in you. Repentance unto life makes us watchful over the very motions of sin in our lives. Notice he goes further. What clearing of yourselves. That's not self-justifying. That is the, uh, uh, the, the pursuing of a course that would remedy the shame that has been brought upon our lives. Yea, what indignation. Yea, what fear. Yea, what vehement desire. Yea, what zeal. What revenge. In all things, ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this Matter, matter. What's the point? Where repentance is, it discovers sin and says, this is being cut off. Whatever it takes to see this put down, I will not rest till it is so. Now you think of what this means in the Corinthians. They were previously glorying in that they were so merciful as to permit a man to have his father's wife, his stepmother. And they were saying, look how gracious we are. And they gloried in this. Paul came in and said, this is ridiculous. You should not only not tolerate this man, you ought to discipline that man that he would then learn not to sin. And what happened? They repented. And what did they do? They didn't say, well, we messed up, so we're not going to do that. They put him out. And now Paul's going to address that as well in this epistle. Seeing the man. Think of this, the glorious truth of church discipline as an aside. It brought about the repentance of that man. And he was restored. But coming back to our point, 
they saw what Paul was saying and they said, we're not going to vindicate ourselves at all. We are seeing this remedied in accordance to God's Word. But how contrary that is to false repentance. False repentance is content to deal with the shame-filled display of sin, but is not willing to take the axe and lay it at the root. Whereas that's the very reality of true repentance. So you see it in Judas. Judas is sorry. He's overwhelmed. He's grieved. He takes the money back. There's some sort of turning in him. But does he seek God? And the answer is no. He seeks the covering of his shame by, as it were, taking his own life. Well, notice an example very clear in the Scriptures of true repentance. When, for instance, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 9, Paul testifies of the display of grace in the Word of God coming to them by power with the Holy Ghost. 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 9, For they, the rest of the Gentiles, show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for a son from heaven. How is it that there's true repentance here? Well, it's not just that they put their idols away and said this was shameful what we did. It's that they turned to God and their whole life was now filled with service to Him. That's repentance. Here's something to remember. Though there is an initial repentance for the Christian, the life of the Christian is one of repentance. There's a dear elder in our presbytery when interviewing applicants, he's sure to ask this question. When was the last time you repented? It's a good question to put to yourselves. When was the last time you repented? And some of you are going to think, what, you know, what was it, six months ago? Maybe a year ago? Some of you might be tempted to think, you know, five years ago there was that sin that I had and I repented then. I want to challenge you by the authority of God's Word to say, you have little thoughts of several things. Sin, Christ, repentance, and faith. Because if your first word is not, I am, by God's grace, striving every day to repent, you are missing the fundamental calling of your life. Calvin is able to summarize the life of the Christian in this way. Self-denial, repentance, cross-bearing. That's it. Some of you have read the Institutes. There's a section in that that's been republished. The Golden Booklet of the True Christian Life. If you've not read it, you ought to read it. It's simple, it's clear, and it is counter-cultural, not just to our culture, but it is counter-cultural to the world. Because in this life, he's put his finger upon a central tenet of Christianity. Think of what we read in Matthew 6, in God's providence. Who here can say, you know what, every time I pray, I'm only seeking the Lord's good. Who here can say, every breath that I'm taking, I am seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And if you can't say that you are, then brethren, here's what you have need of. Repentance. You and I need to repent. 
We need to turn to God and say, though you have turned me, I still have need of greater turning, stronger turning, more enduring turning. True repentance is not a one-and-done thing. It is a once-begun and never finished until the end of our lives. Now the world hears that and says, I don't have time for that kind of stuff. And you think what the world does have time for. The world has time for the endless cycle of seeking out pleasures which pass. It's football season. There are some who every Friday it comes, they're checking the spread and they're getting out their apps and they're wagering money on the upcoming field of college and professional football. And they live for it. They lose money, they gain money. This is their life. It comes around. They Think of this for a moment. They get up at 5 in the morning on a Sunday in order to go to a parking lot, tailgate, paint their faces, do all of these things, live or die by the activities of their team. And then they come back the next week to do it again. I saw an article. and What an astoundingly waste of life. There is a man who since 1972 has not missed one game of a certain college football team. And he's given accolades for this. This is the life of the world. They give themselves to things that do what? Ultimately nothing. And yet, brethren, here's the wonder of repentance. Where there's true repentance, it is the drawing near to God. Is that not worth examining yourself? Is that not worth searching the Scriptures for the standard of righteousness and the promises of God which are then used to convey to us grace that we might grow and bear more visibly the image of the all-glorious, all-beautiful, most perfect God. Because what repentance is, brethren, it is the forming of God's image upon us more consistently, clearly, and faithfully. Because when we discover sin, what we're saying is that is unwelcome because God is worth more than my tolerating of that. And it's our, as it were, having His conformed image made more conformed to us and we to it. So repentance is a turning to the Lord that we would more devote ourselves to Him and be like Him in all of those beautiful ways of holiness. The world has its seasons. It has its idols. And it spends much for them. And yet not one of their idols will ever satisfy their heart. You are called to seek the Lord. So this meaning of repentance unto life is a turning to God, not only because it's right, but because it's good. What are the motives? Secondly, and briefly, well, one we know quite clearly is the conviction of sin. If ever we've repented, it's because we've been motivated by the conviction of sin. We discovered it. 
Sometimes it feels like, and what imagery is used in the Scriptures, of an arrow piercing us, right? So Christ is said to have a sword. And many of us have felt that sword pierce through our hearts. His arrows have found us out. Sometimes in an almost casual remark, a marginal remark in a sermon, or we're reading something and it strikes us, and it hits us as if God had drawn back His bow and fired off the arrow with such precision that it has sought out that which was hidden to us, our sin. And when that happens, it makes us feel it. What brought about David's repentance? Do you remember? Nathan comes and he tells David this story. There was a man who had one ewe lamb. He bought, he raised up. It was like his own child. He fed him with his own food. This lamb drank from his own cup. And then this other man who had flocks had someone come visit. And instead of taking of the multiple uh, options he had, he went and took this ewe lamb and he uh, killed it and fed it to this visitor. And what did David say? He rose up and said, Surely, as the Lord liveth, that man deserves to die. And what did Nathan say? Thou art the man. What happened? The arrow of God sought out its target in David's life. And brethren, capture this for a moment. This is a preeminent motive for repentance. We get convinced and convicted of sin. And yet survey, I challenge you, survey the the current Protestant pulpit and ask yourself this question, are there any arrows being shot? Is there any word of conviction going out? Is there any searching out and saying, this is what sin is, you need to search your life. And you will realize that though we can discover that, and God be praised that there are, that the overwhelming majority witness of our generation is this message of, well, what the church needs is comfort. What the church needs is this and that. And we deny it not. But can we not say that what the church needs is repentance? And repentance is brought about by conviction of sin? And it's astounding to us that people dare invoke the name of Jesus as if that should be the reason we aren't searching out sin. Because the only Jesus we know in the Scriptures was preeminently a preacher who called sinners to repentance. Repent. He summarizes his message. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. He goes preaching the good news, calling sinners to repentance. Brethren, Christ was a convicting preacher. He doesn't do so with all of the fanfare of our modern day. He doesn't do it always by throwing up dust in the air and so on, as some of His servants have. You think of prophets and other apostles and ministers even today. But when you read His Word, He searches out sin. Think about the woman at the well. And He conversing with her, And he says, go and call your husband. I don't have a husband. I know. And he rehearses to her her line of sin. What's he doing? He's calling her to face up to her sins. 
Jesus does this in his word. You can't read the writings that record his word without sensing conviction. Conviction of sin is one such motive because what that conviction is, and oh how foolish for us to deny it or seek to quell it, that conviction is us being told, you've got a problem that is actually not good for you. You know what happens in your body when you get a pain? For many of us, we say, there's something wrong, but I'm not going to think about it because there might be something really wrong. Others panic at the slightest of pains, but eventually, even the most stout-hearted, they get the pain at last long enough or it gets so acute, they finally go to the doctor and say, I've got this pain. And they expose it. And the doctor runs tests. Why? Because they want to see just how bad this thing is. But in spiritual pain of conviction, we take the opposite tactic and we say, well, I should just have comfort. Not realizing that actually the conviction is a mercy telling us there's something wrong and calling us to the remedy which is found in Christ Jesus. There's a related motive, which is the fear of judgment. You can see this illustrated in the preaching of Jonah as he went to Nineveh. And he says, listen, Nineveh is going to be destroyed. You have sinned. Here are the days that are coming. In 40 days, Nineveh shall be no more. What did the king of Nineveh take to heart? He calls not just for a personal fast, not just for a family fast, but for the whole city to observe a fast, to humble themselves and repent because judgment was coming. Brethren, what happens in our nation when judgment is whispered at? What do our leaders do when there are problems? People say, well, wait a second, separation, church and state, and so on. We say, okay, well, show me that in the Bible, number one. Number two, what did the pagan king of Nineveh do when judgment was threatened against his kingdom? He didn't say, we're going to withstand. You know, this is a rallying time. We're going to come together. We're going to get better. We're going to get stronger. We're going to build up our military. We're going to get everything in order. Our country's going to be stronger because of this. No, this is what happened. They all went to their faces and vindicated God. Our nation is a proud and arrogant and sinful nation. There are good things that come to us by those who serve in our government, in our military, and so on. But we need to see this outside of the patriotism of our country and see it in the sight of God. God shoots arrows over our nation. He fires the cannon over the hull of our ship. And our nation, instead of saying, we have this problem with God, there's threatened judgments coming. The nation says, well, how do we build up the supply chain? The nation says, well, how do we get oil in our own nation? How do we restore all of these things of commerce here? What do we do in order to fight this and that and the other? All of which have their place. We don't deny it. But understand this. The fear of judgment is to bring about repentance. And the church is the foremost rallying the cry 
for the restoring of America by political means. The church should be leading the way out of fear of judgment in repentance, searching itself. Think of what happened when Joshua went up and they were overwhelmed. They said, there's sin in the camp. We've got to discover this sin. And so they seek out Achan and Achan's found out. There's the sin. We can't prosper unless there's repentance. Know this. In all of the hoopla that's starting now about votes and Republicans and Democrats and third parties and this candidate and that candidate, until there's a call to repentance, not one candidate is going to do any lasting good for our nation. Not one. Don't get sucked in to the nonsense of the talking heads because you have a higher calling. You're a Christian. And if you have fear of judgment, personal, corporate, national, then that motive should motivate you to cultivate repentance. It's true personally as we can see in a variety of places, where there is fear of judgment, the judgment is a testimony that God has a controversy with us. Can I go further to make this concrete? Do you know what happened at the initial stages of September 11th? There were Christians who said this is God's judgment. Do you know what happened in the following week? Nearly every one of them walked it back. Because the world shouted against them. You know what happened with COVID? There were Christians who said this is a whisper of God's controversy with the land. And then they walked it back. Brethren, you search the Scriptures and you find this truth out. Who is it that sends war? Who is it that sends pestilence? Who is it that sends famine? Who is it that sends all of these upheavals? It's God. And when does He send it? When He has a controversy with that people. This isn't fundamentalism. This is basic biblical instruction from the beginning. And yet I want you to listen to the way that Christian conservatives talk. Well, you see, this is the problem of the Democrats. Or this is the problem of the rhinos. And this is the problem of all these things going on. And what we need is a better candidate who knows fiscal responsibility and who will bring back jobs to America and who will strengthen the military and ensure that we have all of these things in order. Well, I don't deny that all of those things are good things to do. But I do deny that that will do anything to solve the controversy God has with America. Because the controversy is because of our sin. And where there is the judgment and the whispers of judgment and the threatenings of judgment, there is the call for the remedy by repentance turning to God. But there's another motive. And oh, how sweet of God to provide it to us. It is His mercy. Do we not see it in the posture of 
the king of Nineveh, who knows, but that God may relent and have mercy on us. Look, for instance, in the book of Joel, in chapter 2, at verse 12, the call to repentance, saith the Lord, turn ye even to me. Notice, turn even to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Turn unto the Lord your God. Why? Some of you can finish it. For He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and repenteth Him of the evil. Why do we repent? But because God holds forth hope of mercy and grace. So think for a moment how when the world rallies and says, we'll get through this, we'll come out stronger, we'll come out better, they're actually hindering the greatest good that would be brought to us, which is knowing the Lord's mercy and His grace. But we can go personal and individual. It's right for you, sinner, to be convinced of your sin. It's right for you to say, if I don't repent, I've got hell in front of me. But you must have more than that. We ridicule those who say, well, don't preach hell. It never scares anyone into heaven. We have no hesitation to say that's true. But it sure does scare people away from hell. It sure does sober them to realize damnation is real. The fires of hell are real. They need something that they can't provide. But we do agree and affirm that that which ultimately draws one unto repentance is the mercy of God in Christ. And isn't it what Christ says? Come ye unto Me, all that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's opening the fact that He is meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest for your souls. You see, repentance is always painted by the world as this laborious and bitter and you know, distasteful thing. Whereas Christ is saying, the only reason it's distasteful is because you have too much love to your sin. But you need to see through that that there is something sweeter in what you discover in Me. Because I give you rest. I give you salvation. And so, here's something to add unto your motive. If you're convicted of your sin, and you're saying, this sin is so strongly holding me, I need to repent. And you're saying, I need to see sin in its right light. I need to see the judgment that will come. You need to say, but I also need to see the mercy of God in Christ that He receives sinners. This man eats with sinners. Praise God that he does. Because he receives them unto repentance. Perceive the mercy of God in Christ. And you will come as the one who had the issue of blood. And she said, if I but touch the hem of His garment... She was drawn to the knowledge of His mercy and grace. Or you'll come as the one who's refused three times, the last time being called, as it were, a dog. Yea, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the Master's table. What is the perception in all of that? But the mercy of God 
in Christ. Well, what's the cause? We've already seen it. We see it here as we come to a close as well. Notice what they say. Verse 18, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. What's the cause? It's God's grace. It is solely God's grace. He uses means, as we've seen, the conviction of sin, the fear of judgment, the mercy of God in Christ. He does all of this by His Word, the preaching of His Word, and so on. But let us be clear, it is because of His grace that one is ever able to repent. So where does this leave us? Well, it does leave us with the need to examine ourselves, to ask the question and entertain it, is my repentance merely that which the world has, regret, outward reform, or is there really a turning unto God? How would I know if it is turning unto God? Well, it won't be satisfied with a one-and-done thought. It is satisfied with a constant growth in knowing this God to whom we've turned. That's repentance. Is that in you? Because if it's not, you don't have true conversion. Well, would you cultivate repentance? Well, if these are motives, as we've seen, then we have need to get a true sight of sin. We have need to see indeed the reality of judgment against sinners. But we also have need to perceive the mercy of God in Christ, welcoming sinners to Himself, and seeing that it's Christ who promises to give a new heart, a new life, a new uh, calling. So we have to fill our minds with this. But if you've repented, as every believer indeed has and is doing, then brethren, here is a cause of tremendous praise and thanksgiving. Because you have not worked it up yourself. It's not been the ability that you had. It's not been the ability of others in your life. It is because God has freely granted to you this repentance. And here's something more to rejoice in. Every Christian is nagged by this reality. The good that I would, I do not. And that which I would, I do not. And we cry out, ultimately, I want full repentance. I want every thought, desire, action turned from that's sinful in every degree of of which it's sinful. Here's the great encouragement we have. On the last day, your life of repentance will be finished because your life will be perfect. This labor by grace of seeking and examining and discovering and repenting and confessing and imploring God for more grace, all of that will be a thing of the past. Because on the last day, the souls of believers at death are made perfectly holy. And at the resurrection, their bodies and souls united together are glorified to have no sin at all in any degree. So here's your encouragement, brethren. The repentance that you've experienced thus far is but a whisper of the perfect glory of holiness that you will enjoy forever because of God's grace. Would you stand with me for prayer?